Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good morning, and welcome to the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. My name is Sharon Begley. I'm the Senior Science and Health Correspondent at Reuters, and I will be your moderator for today's panel discussion, whose topic is bird flu research, dangerous information on a deadly virus. We have four distinguished panelists this morning. Starting from my immediate left is Mark Lipsitch, Professor of Epidemiology at Harvard School of Public Health and Director of its Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. Working closely with local, state, national, and international health authorities, Professor Lipsitch contributed crucial modeling and analysis during the 2003 SARS epidemic and the 2009 influenza pandemic. Most recently, he helped analyze the 2011 E. coli outbreak in Europe. Professor Lipsitch's current research includes fluke forecasting, pandemic preparedness, and response. Sitting next to him is Professor Barry Bloom, an immunologist and former dean of Harvard School of Public Health. Following the 9-11 and anthrax attacks, Professor Bloom co-chaired the bioterrorism panel for the National Academy of Sciences report on terrorism. He served on the National Advisory Councils of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the Center for, Infe for Infectious Diseases at CDC, and on the U.S. National Vaccine Advisory Committee. He is a recipient of the Robert Koch Gold Medal for Lifetime Research in Infectious Diseases. Jean Gilman is a senior advisor at the MIT Security Studies Program and author of a number of books examining the history of biological weapons and on contemporary bioterrorism. She is a member of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Weapons of Mass Destruction. Her latest book is American Anthrax, Fear, Crime, and the Investigation of the Nation's Deadliest Bioterrorist Attack. Last but not least is retired Colonel David Franz, former commander of the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, known as USAMRID, Dr. Franz was the chief inspector on three UN Special Commission biological warfare missions to Iraq. He is a member of the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, of which we will be hearing more today. This is the federal board whose recent report recommended that the journals Science and Nature not publish details on recent experiments to make the deadly H5N1 bird flu virus more transmissible among mammals. Before we hear from our distinguished panelists, let me briefly lay out the background of today's topic. On November 30th, um, a representative from the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity phoned an editor at the journal Science, asking that key details of the methods and materials section in a paper be stricken before publication. The next day, December 1st, letters making the same request arrived at Nature as well as Science. The two journals agreed to withhold publication of these crucial details if the government devised a system to allow responsible scientists to read the uncensored versions. Fast forward to January 19th, when 39 influential immunologists and virologists called for a 60-day moratorium on research on H5N1 mutant varieties. Tomorrow and Friday, February 15th and 16th, at the World Health Organization headquarters in Geneva, there will be a closed invitation-only meeting on this topic. 
to start us off, um, we've asked Dr. Lipsitch to give us a little précis of the science underlying the controversial experiments. Take it away. Thank you. Since the late 1990s, there has been a highly pathogenic strain of influenza H5N1 circulating in birds, in, uh, first in Asia and then in other parts of the world. That strain to date has been very hard to transmit to human beings, although it has been transmitted to a number uh, and very even harder for human beings to transmit from one to another. So to date there have been almost 600 reported cases of this in humans and the, the very frightening part of that is that 60% or so of those 600 cases have been fatal. Um, for that reason, uh, there has been a, a lot of effort, uh, a large effort worldwide and in this country to prepare for the possibility of a pandemic from this strain uh, or from a similar strain. And the distinction is that a pandemic would involve efficient human-to-human -human transmission uh, of a strain like this, uh, as we saw from the much milder H1N1 strain that happened in 2009. Uh, because we so far don't understand the major determinants of transmission of a strain from human to human, uh, scientists have been interested in the question of, of what viral mutations are necessary or what viral uh, features in the viral proteins are necessary to confer that kind of transmissibility. Two teams, one in, in the Netherlands and one in Wisconsin, set out to try to understand that in the context of this H5N1 virus. And <clears throat> the two papers, one being uh, undergoing uh, or scheduled for publication in Nature and one in Science, uh, these two papers try to address that question uh, through a set of experiments in which the scientists took uh, strains of H5N1 that had been bird uh, in birds, and through a combination of genetic manipulation and passage through the through the noses of ferrets, were able to obtain strains that were then uh, readily transmissible by the airborne route from one ferret to another. Ferrets are one of the animal models that are used to try to study flu pathogenesis and also to some extent transmission. They're not a perfect reflection at all of how humans. Uh, of how flu viruses work in humans, but they are uh, they are probably the best model animal model we have, and of course this mo this experiment couldn't have been done in humans ethically. Um, so the fact that the strain is transmissible in ferrets by an airborne route uh, fairly readily suggests that it may be also this mutant strain may also be transmissible from person to person. The reason for doing this was to again to study flu evolution and flu, flu transmissibility. Uh, some two topics on which we have a lot of data, but even more open questions. Um, so that's the purpose of it. And the obvious concern is that a strain like this is one that might combine, that does combine in ferrets very high uh, severity with, with high transmissibility. And if that were true in humans, it would be obviously an extremely dangerous strain in humans. Thank you. Professor Boom. Uh, this question has been uh, faced on a number of previous occasions uh, that we will perhaps hear about later, uh, dividing the scientific community uh, between what is appropriate for protecting the safety of the global public, if you will, and to what extent freedom, uh, academic freedom and freedom of scientific in uh, inquiry uh, should be or can be protected and the challenge of a balance. 
they're basically um, starting with the extreme views of some scientists. Um, there's the view that um, this is so potentially dangerous that nothing of this work should be allowed to be published. It should be censored and closed, and that all further work on H5N1 uh, genetic manipulation uh, should be stopped. That's an extreme position. And I would say, while it sounds a bit uh, extreme, um, in the context of a, a comment in a recent article by Laurie Garrett at the Council for Foreign Relations, she quotes the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula making a call to arms and in quotes, brothers with degrees in microbiology and chemistry to develop a weapon of mass destruction. And the potential of a transmissible, highly virulent uh, influenza is the kind of threat that the people who would like to stop all of this um, are concerned about, and it's undoubtedly a real concern. On the other extreme are the people who believe uh, that it is absolutely essential to the scientific process that everything be open and free, that nothing be redacted, um, that um, in essence we don't know uh, that the ferret is, transmission in ferrets would uh, be true for humans. Uh, we know that H1N1, that wasn't the biggest uh, thing to hit the human population, kills ferrets very rapidly and yet not so dangerous in humans. So the question is, um, we need to do the science would be the other extreme position. Uh, modifying that position would be at least 300 to 1,000 people have been reviewers, editors, or participants in meetings where the details of at least one of the laboratory studies is already out. The internet makes it very likely you can't keep anything in science uh, secret for very long, so we might as well uh, be open about it because we really need to understand what these people are uh, learning. And the third argument for openness is how do you do surveillance of the natural emergence of terribly transmissible virulent H5N1 if in fact what you're looking for are the mutations that would enable that natural flu uh, to become transmissible in humans so that it would be essential to have this stuff open and available for surveillance work and it would enable vaccine companies to start making vaccines in advance assuming that there would be a bad H5N1 uh, emergence either uh, naturally or introduced by people who wish to do harm. The counter arguments to that are very practical and not theoretical. And that is simply uh, birds, surveillance of bird influenza is terrible, unlikely to get better, and people running around parts of rural China and Indonesia with PCR kits diagnosing the emergence of natural transmissible mutants of H5 or anything else is an exceedingly unlikely scenario. And reciprocally, how many vaccine companies are going to invest $100 million in a generic H5 uh, recombinant uh, flu vaccine uh, rather than waiting for what actually emerges in the world, which is what all vaccine companies want to make their vaccine against, because at least they know that's the problem if it emerges. So that um, even for the openness uh, arguments, uh, it really comes down to what Mark said. We really don't understand flu, and the main argument for pursuing this research is we don't know what's going to arise naturally, whether in 
H2 or H7, AH9 strains that could become transmissible in humans. So the argument is we need to learn more and that makes uh, the research uh, important to do. I would just separate in the discussion two thoughts. One is what do we publish? What do we make available? And the second is who do we let actually work with recombinant viruses? And they're quite different issues. And the scientific community is somewhat divided on both. I'll stop there. Thank you. Professor Gilman. Thank you. Um, I want to address the question of how we got to this controversy from a historical perspective. If you go back to 9-11 and the 2001 anthrax letter attacks, I think you see the beginning of the road uh, that which has been traveled over the last decade. That is, you go from relatively minor funding for bioterrorism slash emerging infectious diseases to actually billions of dollars being put into uh, basic research, uh, research and development. Again, on these twinned concerns, bioterrorism plus emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. If you look at the very beginning funding, 2002, even 2003, you'll see that a lot of money went to the study of anthrax. It was the anthrax letter issue. The next year it shifted over to plague, by the way, so people in various labs would say, well, okay, now we're doing plague. And then after that, well, let's do more on smallpox. Then, over the years, and this is a very interesting transformation, and I think it's where we are now, the, the funding emphasis, for example, at NIAID, at the uh, Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, shifted almost to half, and then over half, and then now to nearly 60% for global infectious diseases, with only about 28% going to the um, Class A select agents which are anthrax, plague, et cetera. So that's a very interesting change, but one of the problems is that the twinning of the bioterrorism threat with the emerging infectious disease threat also meant that you were uniting two very different communities or even camps. That is, you have people who believe that bioterrorism is coming at any moment, it, we're going to be attacked, uh, Al-Qaeda is getting ready, and that mentality is very much allied although it may sound a little bit strange, it's very much allied to a military mentality for, for getting ahead of the weapon of the enemy. So what do you do? You use basic science to, to, to do what you think that bioterrorism enemy is going to do and, and do it ahead, right? You do, do it before they show up with that, that incredible new weapon. So that's a kind of mentality. The other mentality, of course, is the very conventional um, public health mentality which has in it some ideas of preempting what the enemy will do, will do, but is actually much more centered on known risks. So I think, for example, that after the anthrax letters, the defining moment in biodefense was SARS. That is, SARS brought it home. This could be really terrible. This could get out of control. And that was a real event. That was a real event. Um, I'm not saying the anthrax letters were not a real event. I've written a whole book on the real event of the anthrax letters. But compared to SARS, I think that SARS began to define where the money would go and, and that it would lead eventually to H5N1 as a problem. What's interesting to me is that I talk with people both in the defense sector and also in the public health sector. And from the defense sector, we hear words like, why are you know, basic scientists who are receiving biodefense money in academic centers, for example, so naive 
Why, why don't they think about the consequences of what they're doing? Uh, why do they just go in the labs and, and go forward uh, and not think of the quid pro quo? And one of the quid pro quos, by the way, in defense research is secrecy. If you take the money, you, there are things you give up. You give up uh, maybe the privacy that you thought surrounded your personal life because there'll be personal reliability standards. The, there, there are quid pro quos when you get into the defense sector. So why be so naive? Okay. From the public health point of view, and I think Barry has spoken very much to, to this position, the idea is the protection of the public is absolutely priority and secrecy is the last thing that you want. And you can look at all sorts of outbreaks. Uh, 1972 in Yugoslavia, I can look at 1979 in Sverdlovsk. You can go around everywhere you look. SARS, by the way, where secrecy was a factor in the playing out of an epidemic, people died. People died, and they were not diagnosed, and then more people died. And that's the, I think that's a, a very strong public health position. All I'm doing is pointing out here that there is a kind of a conflict of cultures. Uh, the last thing I want to say is that this is an area that is really ripe for policy, uh, I wouldn't even say reform, policy definition. The policies are everywhere. Um, when I was writing on the history of biological weapons in 2005, I went and counted 47 different federal offices that dealt with biological weapons issues. I think there are probably more now. I don't think there are less. The congressional committees, I can't even keep track of them, wouldn't even begin to know where to begin with that. We have a whole new Department of Homeland Security. So where is the policy? And you look around, you, where, for example, and I, I've raised this in, in another forum, where is project review? Department of Homeland Security has uh, methods for reviewing projects even before they are initiated. And it, it makes not just the principal investigator, but it makes an entire committee responsible for how the project proceeds and whether risks are increased by that project or decreased by that project and, and, and look, you know, carries it through to the end. Thinking beforehand, what is a project, what are its repercussions, is very important. And it's a, I think it's a big, or should be a big policy issue. So anyway, this is ripe for people in the field of public health. This field of biodefense needs you. It really needs your input. It needs professionals who understand public health. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Friends. Thanks, Sharon. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in the, in the last months about what to publish and whether, whether to publish. And it's my understanding that that's going to be the focus of the meeting in Geneva this week. It's my sense that this information will become available eventually. And in the future, uh, information like this will eventually become uh, available. Uh, I think, as uh, Jeannie has said, this H5N1 experience gives us an opportunity to, to sort of reset the way we think about infectious disease, infectious disease research, uh, the tools and the knowledge of biotechnology that have become so powerful, and responsibility in life sciences research. Uh, Almost universally, these powerful tools are used for good, have been used for good, and I believe will be used for good in the future.
but we can't ignore the small possibility that they might be used for harm, either accidentally or, uh, or even intentionally. I believe, as already ha has been mentioned, that this particular virus is special. This, this is the first time I've seen one that really sort of made me stand up and take notice uh, for the reasons that Mark has, has already mentioned. It might be lethal and it might be uh, communicable or transmissible between humans. We don't know that for sure because the work was done in an animal model, but for the first time we have one that's transmissible between mammals and the ferret is, uh, is considered uh, a good model. Uh, and I'm also concerned, uh, as, as Professor Bloom has mentioned, uh, or alluded to uh, public health response, that we may not be able to mount an appropriate uh, and adequate public health response where something like this, uh, where a virus like this to get away, if it were lethal and if it were communicable. Uh, I'm not sure we could get medical countermeasures to the right place in the right uh, time, in the right quantities uh, to actually control an outbreak like this. So safety and security become an issue. On this one, I'm probably more concerned about safety than I am about security. I think there will likely be, uh, certainly be, more scientists working in laboratories, legitimate laboratories, on bugs like this than there will be terrorists working in caves on bugs like this. Uh, those laboratories, uh, if you look at the proliferation of high containment labs around the world, in the last 10 years do not all meet the same standards, however, and I think it's important that we think about the standards of, uh, of biological safety in particular. If I were responsible for working with this bug, I would work with it at the highest uh, level of containment, and I would work with it uh, for good reason only. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, do trivial experiments uh, that do not contribute uh, important information to, to our, uh, our data. Geographically, and I think it's critical that we realize that this is, a global, this is a global issue. Proliferation of technologies and knowledge is, is global now. Uh, this is not just a U.S. problem. In this case, maybe the tacit knowledge, the soft knowledge, and even some of the, the particular data are not available globally, but this is going to happen. And in the future, we will have cases like this in which the information uh, to do harm with, with good biology will, uh, will proliferate uh, globally. So it's an international challenge, and I think we must have an international solution to this, this challenge. So what's the way ahead? Uh, my sense is that uh, education, consensus, norms, uh, sort of behavioral responses will be more useful to deal with this kind of a problem in the future than will be regulatory schemes. Regulatory schemes are, are really hard to assure compliance with in, in biology. It's much different than the nuclear model. Uh, and so often we go back because we're comfortable in a nuclear model. Uh, 
sequestering scientists, locking up isotopes and so on. You just can't do that in biology. So I'm happy that the WHO will be involved uh, this week in looking at this, this case. I think education and openness, true partnership, networks. I like the idea of networks of academe, industry, and government where, as uh, Richard stated in a, in a book 10 years ago, uh, knowledge is the currency, not political, uh, not political clout, but knowledge is the currency uh, in these kinds of networks, building toward communities of trust, which are tough. They're not a perfect solution. I believe there are no perfect solutions to this problem. Uh, there will always be risk as long as there is a life sciences enterprise, but we need to learn to manage that risk as, as best we can. Uh, this is a dangerous world, and this is just one of the issues that we deal with uh, in this world. So on balance and in closing, I think it's important to share the bad news that comes out of science as well as the good news as broadly as possible with our best experts, uh, not only in the U.S., but globally, so that together uh, we can work toward reducing the risks uh, to the, uh, the most uh, controllable or minimal levels. Thanks. Thank you. Um, you all have done a great job of raising a number of issues involving this. Um, let's try to dig down into at least a couple of them. Um, Dr. Lipsitch, let me start with you. Um, just on the very basics, should the research have been done? Um, Dr. Bloom laid out some arguments for why the public health arguments might not be so compelling. Um, and should they be published in their full details? Thanks. Um, I think the research, it's good that the research was done because I think it among other, among other reasons, I think it helps us to remember that the H5N1 pandemic threat is a real one. We sort of, it, every year that a pandemic didn't occur, people began to think, were we crying wolf and was there, was there some reason uh, to think this threat was diminished? And I think psychologically with the 2009 pandemic, we, uh, which was not H5 and was not as bad as H5, a lot of people uh, found it hard to maintain the same level of preparedness, but the threat continues, and I think this is a scientific piece of evidence that it continues. So in that regard, I think it's important, and I think we need to know how flu evolves and how flu becomes transmissible. Uh, I, I feel strongly, as, as David Franz said, that this kind of work should be done under very high containment. Um, it was done under enhanced biosafety level three, which is one level below the highest containment level of biosafety level four. Um, I think there are a lot of pathogens that are considered bio level four, like Ebola, which are unlikely to cause major outbreaks in an industrialized setting, but which are given high containment, while in my view more dangerous pathogens like, uh, like this one are, are, taken on, are used under lesser, lesser containment. So my view is that it should have been done, if at all, under, much under the highest containment. Um, and that that really, even more than the publication, is the, is the issue going forward. I would probably, uh, on balance, favor uh, redacting the, the technical details of how it was done. I don't feel as strongly about that, though, as I feel about the importance of containing the virus itself, uh, as, as Barry Bloom mentioned. It's a different issue, but I think it's a much more important issue that's getting less attention. It should not be in hundreds of labs around the world. Um, the history is that we've had accidental releases of flu in 1977 that has been with us until 
2009, that strain spread globally. We had two accidental releases that didn't spread of SARS. We've had accidental releases of foot and mouth disease. Um, we've had accidental uh, infections of smallpox. Uh, most of those have not caused major epidemics, but this strain is not something we want to mess with. And the more, more uh, labs have it, the greater that, that risk. Um, so. As, as you've just laid out, it feels a little bit like we're talking about closing the barn door after the horse has escaped. Um, the research has been done. It exists in papers that are sitting on at least a few computer servers. Um, should this research not have been funded in the first place? I wonder if Dr. Franz can take a crack at that. Um, where, is the where does the NSABB currently step in? And is there an argument for reviewing dual-use research uh, at a level other than um, NIH, which is the agency that funded both studies? Currently, uh, the way it normally happens is a journal will approach the NSABB and say, as it, it did in these two cases, I have this manuscript, we have this manuscript, do you think it ought to be published? There are a number of other uh, places along the way, uh, for example, reviewers are asked to check a box, is this dual-use research? Uh, now, in some instances and in some institutions, uh, protocols are looked at for uh, the potential of dual-use research of concern. But we don't have really an, uh, a, a system uh, throughout the various, throughout uh, academe, industry, and government to look at this formally uh, in advance. But in our life sciences enterprise, and actually the global enterprise, I think once the research is done, it's just too late to be thinking about this. On the other hand, I would be very concerned if we tried to put in, in place a very rigid means of looking at every uh, every bit of life sciences research that is going to be done. It's interesting that if you think about uh, phar uh, the pharmaceutical industry, I think security there is probably better than it is any place in government. And their research may actually be born classified, it's not truly government classified, but born uh, uh, confidential, business confidential. And, and I think it works pretty well. Uh, but those are pretty rigid guidelines and rules within which they live. So the short answer is, to date, the NSABB has looked at these things at the manuscript level, uh, and, but has talked about, with leaders in, the, in these communities, talked about the possibility of considering research before it begins. And it's happening in some places, but not universally, certainly. Um, Professor Bloom, you mentioned that it's estimated that 300 to 1,000 people know in at least some detail um, what the research uh, has found and how it was conducted. Um, it was discussed at at least one open meeting last year in Malta. Um, colleagues, uh, others around the university have heard of it. Um, what do we know about the cybersecurity, and this can be for yourself or anyone um, who wants to take a crack at it, um, BSL-3 and 4 labs are required to have certain physical um, containment uh, steps. What do we know about cybersecurity at any of these labs? Um, I'm not sure we know very much about cybersecurity. 
uh, between uh, everything that goes on on the internet, Twitter and Facebook, uh, it's almost uh, an oxymoron to talk about uh, cybersecurity. Um, uh, my personal view is it's very hard to squelch information in a, in a highly connected world. So um, I agree with um, David Franz that the most important thing the scientific community can do is to be as open and transparent as possible. And I'll try to define that in, in a couple wo words. So I have no problem with redaction of technical details. I don't think one necessarily wants to write a cookbook of how to make a transmissible uh, virus, even with the reservations that what works in ferrets may or may not work in humans. Um, I think one has also to recognize this is not trivial work. This virus doesn't just go in and sit on a ribosome and make its proteins. It's a negative virus. It has to make a positive strand. It's a complicated business. It is not trivial to go recreate this virus in a cave. Not impossible. I think Mark's point is right. We're really worried about what's happening in the natural world as chickens and pigs and people live together of what happens and how do we prepare um, uh, for this. And there's no preemption of the evolution of a virus in the real world with all the uh, national advisory boards. And the third point is we don't control what happens internationally. We can have all the scrutiny of NIAID grants. Who knows what's being done in India and China and other places. So I think openness is, and transparency is important. I am, uh, I work on TB. I've actually worked in BL3, which is a very unpleasant place to work. And that's BL3, not BL4. And uh, I would disagree a bit with Mark in the necessity of um, extreme containment. The idea of working in a spacesuit with a plastic hood and a respirator and thick rubber gloves seems to me one of the better ways to predispose to accidents and spills. Um, David may disagree, but my sense is all the physical stuff in the BSL whatevers is almost irrelevant unless you take a bottle and drop it on the floor. Containment is in your fingers and in the concentration and in the training that people have. And I think we've underestimated that the Dutch who did this and the Wisconsin group have people that are exceedingly experienced and carefully trained. So I agree with Mark very much that the number of labs that should play with really dangerous agents should, number one, be limited and restricted. It should have good biological containment, BSL-3 or better. But most important, we should know who they are and where they are, and they should be monitored in some manner, shape, or form. I don't think, as David said, uh, a thousand labs, anybody who wants to write to CDC should get a sample to play with. But by knowing who has them and that there is some government monitoring, you are on the way to some sort of an international agreement where we could um, standardize that and protect the global public. Let's open it up to questions from the audience. Um, we also have an online audience, but if there's anyone in the room who has a question, um, the microphone will come to you, and if you would be so kind as to tell us who you are. My name is Eva Schoenhammer. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology, and um, there are lots of questions that come up listening to your discussion about the uh, the process of publication such work, but and I'm sure people in the audience will ask about this, but my question is much more perhaps of interest to the public. 
which is, um, is, might this perhaps be an opportunity for either the scientists, as they're convening in Geneva now, to form a network that might be better prepared for such instances, and also for the public and for us public health experts to prepare the public better and give recommendations aside from the movie Contagion, which I think at the moment is the best recommendation. Anyone want to take I a crack? I would to answer that. I, I think that it's a perfect time, and I think that this controversy should just be looked at as an opportunity where, um, you, where people do get together, where they do make the suggestions, get good people around the table, get the A-teams around tables, and, um, and come forth with comprehensible international and national approaches, because this should be a learning experience. This should not happen again, by the way. Uh, there, there should be ways where th some agreement can be reached about danger, and that's the theme that we're addressing here today. So what is the danger, uh, and do we, are we going to take that national security model and impose it on public health, or are we going to get public health people to actually teach the national security community um, about uh, more openness and also about uh, what it means to work, as, as you were saying, what does it mean to work in one of these labs? And my impression, by the way, of microbiology labs is they all look like messy kitchens. <laughs> and, and things happen. And, and um, so, so why don't we address that? Why don't people who are experienced in this area uh, address that and then try to get to standards that are actually protective of the public? It's a wonderful question. Uh, hi, my name is Dr. Helen Stack. I'm visiting Harvard School of Public Health from the Health Protection Agency in the UK. Um, you mentioned earlier about the ability to use this research as the basis for developing vaccines in the future, but that no drug company will want to invest in those vaccines unless they know the virus is going to drift and shift in the correct direction. But my question is, do you think it's worthwhile governments investing in that research in the future for a sufficiently generic H5 vaccine just to give it to people prophylactically, just in case? I, I would just say one of the one of the interesting comments about the laboratories who made these transmissible viruses in ferrets is they tested them against a standard H5 antibody and they were both neutralized. So that um, there is some reassurance that whatever the mutations are that enabled them to transmit didn't change their antigenicity such that they were completely no longer uh, neutralizable. Uh, I don't see the federal government of the United States in the vaccine production business. Um, Walter Reed has a small facility. David Mitt would know better than I. Uh, but vaccines are a commercial enterprise, and then we don't have a lot of say as to um, what they choose to work on, where uh, returns to stockholders are a major consideration rather than public uh, service and public good. To that. Yeah, I think I would just add any decision by a government to invest is a risk and benefit calculation. And I think you can't insure yourself by large investments against every possible risk because the government would go bankrupt. I do think that this, these findings suggest that the estimate of risk should go up from what it was before this was done. I think we now know that with relatively modest changes in the virus, we it is possible for this virus to become transmissible among mammals and possibly among humans. That means that our investment level should go up because the, we, we, the benefit of doing so uh, is potentially larger. Um, what exactly that means, I don't know. But at the moment, as, as was said before, we do not have a capacity if this kind of, if any H5 virus uh, starts to transmit from human to human, 
we do not have a capacity to make a proper global response. We don't have vaccine supplies on a relevant scale. And I think it's time for another discussion about whether larger purchases of, of H5 generic vaccine or uh, other approaches are appropriate. Let me just follow up on that because another argument made by um, uh, most publicly, Ron Fouchier, at Eras who led the studies at Erasmus, was that by identifying the mutations and the particular genes that allowed for airborne transmissibility, um, global surveillance efforts could keep an eye out for those particular mutations, and that would be a red flag that a pandemic is even more likely than had been previously understood. Um, you made the point, Professor Bloom, in your opening remarks that our global surveillance effort is perhaps not what that phrase would indicate. Could you just expand a little bit on, about on that and whether that public health argument is uh, reasonable? The surveillance of emergent strains from chickens and pigs for influenza uh, is a fond aspiration. Uh, there are very few places in the world that even think about doing it, let alone have the technical capacity to use molecular tools to do that. Um, in the best of worlds, we would have a CDC for animal diseases in the United States. We do not. That's not the Department of Agriculture. That uh, is Department of Agriculture, but there is nothing like our CDC. Okay. So that um, for zoonoses, we're really not technically prepared to do, in a practical sense, the kind of surveillance that the molecular uh, insights here would enable us to do. I just don't think it's going to, to really happen, okay. and I wish it were. Um, and maybe, as Jean said, this is an opportunity uh, to rethink on a global basis how to do that. But it isn't there now. Okay. David? I would just add that for, uh, we had West Nile, of course, that was a zoonotic agent that came into this country. That's a, this would be a much different situation. That's an, that's an arbovirus. And this one would move quickly from person to person. And I believe I heard that for H1N1, swine flu, it was in 17 or 18 countries before we knew it was here. So uh, surveillance with this particular virus is different than surveillance with malaria or dengue or, or uh, West Nile, for example, as well. Sir. Hello, uh, I'm Dr. Furkan Burak from Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, Department of Genetic and Complexes, and thank you very much for this very useful discussion. Uh, my first question was about what's the exact role of vaccine companies in this process? Are they contributing or just watch now? And maybe you mentioned a little bit. Another one is, it could be another threatening factor that to make the researcher's name available to public, even if you decide not to publish the material and methods, but you're going to be make available the researcher's name who can produce these very dangerous viruses. So should we publish all or not to publish all? Or publish a little part of these scientific projects or not? Thank you. Who would like to take a crack at that? I think for the second question, the names are out. And, and even if this hadn't been done, you could just look at the list of people who work in this area and know who would be capable of, of this kind of work. Um, so I think, I think that's kind of a, a question of the past. The role of the vaccine companies is, is um, a 
complicated one, and, and we've we've heard that it's a business it's a business decision. Uh, so if governments say we will pay enough money to buy stockpiles of vaccines, they will possibly respond. But but those vaccines, uh, but but at the moment the the scale on which governments have invested is much smaller than would be relevant for a global response. I, I should add here, though, that from the very beginning of biodefense funding, the government was clear that it would fund private commercial enterprises, which mostly turned out to be startup companies. So there have been hundreds of companies which have received biodefense funding in order to do research. So the, the commercial sector is already represented, and I think as, as Dave Franz said, um, you'll find different security measures and safety measures actually in that sector as opposed to the academic center as sector as opposed to uh, the government sector. And for me that's quite troubling because you can go from one lab to another lab and see fairly equivalent projects, but security and safety issues are defined very differently. And openness, uh, secrecy issues are also tend to be modulated by the context. I just made one comment. Vaccines are really quite unusual interventions at a commercial and also at a public health level. Uh, when someone is sick, you give them a pill or a, a, a drug um, because the risk benefit is they're sick and they need something and if there are some adverse effects, that's the price you pay to get better or have a shot at getting better. Vaccines go into normal healthy people and any adverse effect from a vaccine in this country is a potential lawsuit and a, and a major threat to the company. The second point is no one really knows whether a vaccine like a new strain of flu is going to work. And so there's a huge upfront cost. You have to spend 100 to $150 million to build a new plant because you don't make five different vaccines in the same facility. Otherwise, there's a potential for contamination. So these are huge upfront investments for an epidemic that hasn't occurred. And if it did occur, it might have been a slightly antigenically different H5 than the one that you have in the laboratory, in which case your vaccine is not going to be very protective. So that it is one of the most risky businesses, and it isn't just the crassness of people who run vaccine companies. There are huge risks involved in ever getting a vaccine through that is timely and effective. And then the third point is the way flu is grown, it's hard to get a vaccine out and approved, even with standard methods, in less than six months. And we may not, as David says, have six months uh, if there were a worldwide pandemic. So it's a vexed issue. Was there a question here on the left? Sir, yes. Well, the panel knows, but perhaps your, my name is Matthew Messelson. I'm a biologist. As your panel knows, but perhaps your viewing audience doesn't, these two laboratories in the Netherlands and in Wisconsin have published in this area of for years, they're extremely experienced laboratories. Both Kaoka and Fouché are leading investigators. So these aren't just two laboratories that have suddenly appeared doing this work. The uh, second thing we should say, I think, is to use the word dual use is a bit of a stretch. You could imagine somebody intentionally doing this, but it would take a psychopath, not a terrorist, because this would affect worldwide. So you wouldn't think that any kind of terrorist would do that unless he was also a psychopath. So it's a little bit limited. I don't think we should use the word dual use here. And then lastly, um, one of the 
dangers of secrecy is that the scientific enterprise depends on all of us communicating with each other. So that if you do something in secrecy, you may miss out an idea that you otherwise would have had uh, that would have benefited the research or improved the safety. Uh, so that, uh, yes, maybe there are some kinds of information that should be kept secret. But you have to realize that there's going to be a cost, not only the cost that Dr. Gilman mentioned in terms of lives lost, but in terms of understanding. And lastly, on the question of understanding airborne transmission, it may be not just a property of the virus, but what the virus does to the host. That may be an example of the kind of idea that can come out only if you have openness in this area. For example, a virus might do something to the host that makes the host produce more aerosol. Different people produce different amounts of aerosol. So it's very risky to start curtailing the research by good people or the information that they generate. Thank you. Um, Robin, do we have questions from yes. our viewing audience? Yes, hi. Um, I'm Robin Herman. I'm director of the forum. And one of the features of the forum is that we can take questions from our online audience. And uh, I think uh, lots of uh, immunologists uh, <laughs> seem to be <laughs> seem to be watching today. Um, we have a question from Dr. Uh, Ian McLeod, um, who actually works here, I think, right, um, uh, to the panelists. And it has to do with a policy issue. Um, uh, what, what do you have to say about study sections and panels at the funding bodies who would have reviewed these research proposals many years in advance um, to the publication of these results? Do they believe that, that is, do you believe that the funding bodies should have had some stipulation about making this work public? And I would add, or, you know, keeping it secret. You know, at the policy level, what can the funding bodies do? Let's look at the, what policies might be put in place. Well, I could say one word on that, and that is if the money is coming through NIH, you, you cannot impose secrecy and you cannot impose classification, and that's really the end of the story. So uh, what did they think they were doing as they reviewed these projects? Well, that is another question, and that's that point of naivete. Did anybody think through you know, what this would be? And I, I just want to say something else a little bit on this, and it's the crass subject of money. So we've invested $60 billion in the biodefense enterprise. That's a cons very conservative estimate, and that would be over, let's say, eight or nine years. Are we going to continue in the same way with this same kind of investment? Is that going to be our, our uh, are we just going to stumble along the way we've been stumbling along, as opposed to, for example, looking at broad spectrum research or getting the study groups to a little bit more sensitive about what what they're evaluating, what, what are these projects, what are the repercussions of these projects. So I think, again, this is a good wake-up call. Robin, another? Yeah, there's another one here. Um, epidemiologist uh, Edward Goldstein is just asking the simple question, what, is, what might be the effectiveness of poultry vac vaccine? I think some of the concern about poultry vaccination is that uh, flu vaccines are never 100% effective. And one of the good things about poultry is that they are sentinels. If they start dying in large numbers, there's a chance that we pick up the, the, the presence of this H5N1 virus. Um, a vaccinated poultry flock is, first of all, it's hard to accomplish when there are many, many little backyard flocks as there are in Egypt and uh, many parts of Asia. Um, but even if you could accomplish it, there's the risk that you, you immunize the poultry well enough to keep them from uh, getting very sick, but you, but they continue to get infected and shed virus, um, and so I think there's some 
some concern on both sides, although it, it's worthy of examination. I know epidemiologically the issue is typically those backyard flocks. The, the flocks that are in are housed in commercial settings are much less problem, but you can't eliminate the backyard flocks uh, yeah. in, in most countries. That's very good biosecurity is large hen houses and right. industrial production. Right. Can we come back to a question in the room? Was there one here on the left? Yes. Mm. Great. Thank you. Um, Miranda Daniloff Mancusi. I'm with the Division of Policy Translation here at the School of Public Health. Um, I wanted to get back to the question of caves versus labs. Um, and just to have somebody comment a little bit about what is the capacity uh, for uh, some of these viruses to be developed in caves. I mean, what, what is the sort of terrorist capacity? If we could answer that question, <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, every time I go to Washington, I ask everyone I know in the intelligence community, what have you got, what have you got? And the best of it was what you quoted from Lori Garrett, which was quoted by Hillary Clinton when she was at the seventh review conference for the Biological Weapons Convention in December in Geneva, which is there is this bioterrorism threat, and we know it because al-Qaeda wants to recruit biochemists and biology. Well, the truth of the matter is that terrorists have been doing very well, unfortunately, with conventional explosives, and we really haven't had bioterrorism. And the one example of bioterrorism that we have had, if the FBI case is accurate, came from an insider at a military um, laboratory. So, so what do we know about what's going on in caves? About as much as we know what's going on in the family chicken coop. You see, like, I don't know. I don't know anybody who does know. But it's threat construction. It's always threat construction. What threat do you choose to believe? And that will be the way the money gets channeled. How about what's going on in garages? Um, yeah, there we are. Um, oh, yes, that's well, if, interesting. If, if um, Mark would take a crack at in, in your opening remarks, you explained um, that, at least for the lab whose methodology we know a little bit, namely that in Erasmus, um, the mutant version was produced by 10 passages through ferrets. Um, could you just comment on whether, you know, some smart person with a, a BS um, and access to mail order, whatever, could how difficult is that? I mean, it doesn't sound like we're talking about something of the highest technology. So as I understand it, both, both of the papers that are coming through are, combine genetic engineering with passage. So it wasn't just passaging through ferrets, as I understand it. Um, I haven't seen the details, but that's what's been reported. Um, and I think garage and cave is a little bit deceiving. I mean, there are countries that have aspirations to cause destruction in other countries. So it's not, and some of those countries have a certain amount of technological sophistication. So it's not, it's not caves, it's, it's laboratories. Um, I think passaging in ferrets is, is one thing, but, but putting the mutations together uh, in, a, in a biotechnological way is a, is a harder thing. I don't think a smart person with a BA and mail order could easily do it. But I'm not sure that'll be true in five years or 10 years. I mean, the, all of these things are getting easier, and, and uh, we have to see. I don't know. Others, I'm not a virologist. Well, the, so. the national, um, uh, in concert with the National Institutes of Health, but the uh, Department of Health and Human Services has now a very aggressive program of bringing in the do-it-yourself 
people who are online, and they have a whole little staff now that goes out and talks to them and tries to calm them down or integrate them <laughs> into a more legitimate framework. So that's, a, that's an inter I find that an interesting effort. I just wanted to make a note of it. Robin, any? Yes. Um, hello. Again, I'm Robin Herman, director of the forum, and we have questions from our online audience. This is a question from Carmel Wallace in Melbourne. Um, and this person is asking, and again, it's a policy question. If research were to be continued, what regulations would need to be established or altered for the future potentially lethal research? Um, what, where do we go from here? And I, I, I suppose what um, organizations or departments need to establish regulations around this research? I would start, and, and this is a personal view, that transparency and openness is the best constraint we have on illegitimate or um, people intending to do harm. And if it is clear who is able to do the work, who has BSL-3, facilities and they're not in everybody's garage. Um, I think that um, would set a standard um, by which an international uh, convention or agreement, you know, we, we have something called the Pandemic Influenza Preparedness um, Convention, really, or uh, agreement that was made at WHO, uh, where there are serious issues. What happens if a country gives the scientists the strain that is um, going to be the next pandemic, and they give it to a company, what does the country get out of that? That turned out to be a very challenging issue for influenza. One of the strains here came from Indonesia. So one of the things that I think is absolutely essential we haven't mentioned is we're not talking just about scientists who are experts in influenza. If we're going to do this kind of work in an open way, the general public, the political public of all countries of the world that are going to be affected by a pandemic should know what we're up to and know that there are people actually concerned about their safety. And they, to my knowledge, have not been brought in. There'll be two countries represented at WHO, Indonesia and Vietnam, which was the source of the two viruses. That's hardly the 193 countries that make up the World Health Organization's assembly. Another, Robin? Um, if, if I may ask a question, <laughs> um, uh, Dr. Franz, you've said that with this particular bug, uh, we don't have a lot of time. Can you um, expand on that? What, what, what kind of time do we have and why, um, why is it um, so urgent right now with this bug? Well, I'm not an influenza epidemiology, epidemiologist, uh, but based on what I know about flu and what I know about and what I mentioned about H1N1, the swine flu, which was out of the box before we knew it was here. Uh, and what I know and what uh, Professor Bloom has, has mentioned about the production of vaccines, uh, we can't prepare vaccines in time. We have antiviral drugs. They work for a while, and uh, Mark may have uh, much better insight into the use of antiviral drugs than I do. But even distribution, Assuming we have them and assuming they work, distribution uh, could be a real issue in, in an, a virus that could potentially be transmitted uh, this quickly. Let me just ask, we're nearing the end of our time. Um, let me ask each of you, if I may, what would you like to see come out of the WHO meeting? And related to that, 
the moratorium on this research was stated to be 60 days. The clock is running. What would you like to see happen um, on January, February, March 20th, whatever it turns out to be? Um, maybe we'll go around in the order we started, Professor Lipsitch. Yeah, I think the two aspects that are most compelling to me are first the need to regroup about the pandemic threat of H5N1 and to think seriously about issues that just sort of fell off the table. What are we going to do for not just Indonesia, which supplied the virus, but other large countries that maybe didn't supply the virus, but also will have people at risk? How, how would we deal with the pandemic given the what we learned from H1 that, that we don't make vaccines quickly? Um, and the second is to, to really be very cautious in allowing the dissemination of these viruses or other viruses like them to more than a limited number of labs. The publication is less of an issue to me. Professor Bloom. I would support Mark's uh, suggestions. Um, uh, my sense is we should know what labs have and are using uh, potentially pandemic uh, major uh, threats that could transmit um, I think openness and uh, circulation of knowledge in the scientific community is the best way to find outliers or uh, newly emergent threats. Uh, but most important, I think we have to engage in a global discussion of um, the role of um, these threats and the scientific enterprise which is designed to protect the public. Because if the public doesn't understand what we're doing, uh, we're not going to be able to continue to do what we do if more of these cases occur. Professor Gilman. I think the United States leads the way in defining the kinds of norms and values and policies that, that uh, do influence the rest of the world, even though uh, it, it's not a perfect world. And I think it would be wonderful if we could lead the way in having a kind of a Silomar-type conference where you get people together who can really in an intelligent way, in a disinterested way, by the way, not because they're getting biodefense money, but in a disinterested way, consider how the money should be spent, because the money is going to be spent. So what are the directives? What are the objectives? How do you get from here to there? And should we have a changeover, for example, to, uh, to uh, the study of zoonosis, which is really institutional uh, and comprehensive? There are a lot of, lot of decisions, I think, um, that could be made, that should be made, and I hope will be made to give us a, a much more efficient and effective biodefense initiative that really sets a standard for the rest of the world. Dr. Franz. I would hope that out of this, this WHO meeting comes uh, some guidance and, and a clear statement about uh, uh, the way we might work with, with agents like this and the way we might think about planning our, res our research in the, in the future. But more importantly, I hope that in the future they might bring together the other 190 uh, states uh, that are in their, their uh, uh, of the world that that have a vote and that uh, that are involved, so that we might might think about this as a global as a truly global problem, and focus on the the health sector rather than the political uh, sector. Although we're making policy, but I think we need to bring bring the best and brightest uh, of our of our flu virologists, but more broadly of our life scientists, into this discussion. 
Well, we've reached the end of our allotted hour. Um, let me thank the audience for your attention and questions, our online audience as well, and to our distinguished panelists for an enlightening discussion. Thank you very much. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.